me started, so I'm <laughs> yeah. that. yeah, that's, that's a that's really a podcast. long podcast. Yeah. You're meant to get started <laughs> because those same people who won't get vaccinated are the same people who slag off the government and slag off everything else. I'm Alan. This is episode 14 of This Might Be Okay. We skipped episode 13 because that shit is definitely unlucky. We've got a special guest in the building today, film and television cinematographer and all-round superhuman being, Dale McCready. Morning, Dale. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. How are you? Good, thank you. It's a beautiful day today, so um, that really helps. <laughs> the sun is certainly shining where I am as well. Um, as our listeners will know, I also have Debs and Leon in the building. Morning, Leon. Good morning, Asan. And how are else. you? I'm good, thank you. Very good. Debs, how are you? I'm great, thank you. The sun is shining and drum roll, I have no hangover. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Um, Well, look, what I want to do is I want to get straight into this because uh, time will be a little bit short for us today uh, and I want to get as much chat out of Dale as we can. Before we we actually get into being a cinematographer and all of that sort of business, we start all of our podcasts with what have you watched or what have you listened to this week? So, Dale, what have you watched or listened to this week that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, well, so far this week, um, I've really enjoyed Valhalla Murders, actually. I've just um, been watching that on Netflix, and um, uh, I, I like a bit of a Scandi uh, detective story, and um, I, I actually watched that sort of as a way of escaping and thought it was going to be quite straightforward, and then it actually kept going and had a few more twists and turns, and I was like, oh, this is a little, more, a little better than I was expecting it to be, and that, that was quite nice, so it was kind of good fun. Excellent. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all big fans of the... Uh of the Scandi crime thriller on uh, on This Might Be Okay. Um, I've seen Valhalla Murders. I really loved it. It's, it's definitely one of the um, one of the better ones as well. Um, Debs, have you seen it? I haven't, no, and I keep meaning to, so maybe I'll do, do some like watching of that next week. I've had Leon, a busy week, it? sorry, but yeah. No, I'm gonna though, on that recommendation, it's on my list. Um, Excellent. I've Very been good. enveloped in Subaru Blood on Rome. I'm on the end of the second season, so I've gorged that this week. Is that the um, that's the Italian one, isn't it? About the mafia. Yeah, it's like a sort of new Gomorrah. It's okay. different, but it's actually good once you get into it. Is it super violent? No, no more so than Gomorrah. I found um, Gomorrah super violent, to be honest. Yeah, no, it, the soundtrack's not as good as Morcadelic in, in Gomorrah. Okay, but I've also watched Tiger, which is quite ironic after what happened to him this week. Uh, and what did you two think? Two-part documentary. No, it's amazing. It's it is amazing. It is um, absolutely. For those who don't know, it's, yeah, it's a documentary about Tiger Woods that HBO have done, and it's done over two parts. And I think it's based on a Sports Illustrated profile that was done of Tiger and his relationship with his dad like ten or twelve years ago. Um, but it's an excellent, excellent documentary, um, and it is quite timely, I guess, and topical because of the um, the car crash that he had. And sorry, I know we're tight for time, but there's got to be a Fred update because oh yeah, I had to squeeze in a run this morning, and I came back and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna leave him to himself in the apartment. I'm not gonna shut any doors, put him in his room. I'm just gonna leave him. Mm-hmm. And I left the balcony door open because it's sunny, and he was mm-hmm. sunbathing out on the sun lounger. Oh. So I left him. I came back. And I was like, "Wow, he hasn't pooed. He hasn't weaned. He hasn't <laughs> the house." And then, and then, 
<laughs> I found the Sky remote half chewed up. Oh, oh no! <laughs> so he's been sent to his room as a naughty boy. Oh dear! Oh, poor friend. So that's the friend oh, dear. Oh, Excellent. Dear. I'm sorry, Leon. I, I, it, it is absolutely remiss of me to uh, to not open the pod with a, a Fred update. All right, Debs? Yes. What have you watched or um, listened to this week? Well, the, the things worthy note of mention, I guess, are Sound of Metal, which isn't mm-hmm. out yet. I watched a preview of that with Riz Ahmed, and I can't recommend that highly enough. It's so different. And there was a Q&A last night, which was just, oh, the love outpouring from this team of people is incredible. And for anybody that doesn't know, it's about... Um, I guess a punk drummer who loses his hearing and is an addict so he goes to rehab and it's kind of like really really fascinating and brilliantly done um i also behind her eyes on netflix is something that might be another divisive thing for you to watch uh you you know it depends which hat you're wearing i didn't have a writer's hat on i really liked it um mm, and the I'm only oh really good because i, I yeah. it's like Going back to the fact that my mum should should have a little section, she hated it, but my brother and I, you know, we really enjoyed it. It's kind of like really nice, quite binge-worthy. It's also got twists and turns and it's kind of gripping in its own way. So that's a good one on, yeah. on Netflix. It's nicely made too. I mean, I'm only two episodes in, so um, yeah. it's nice. It's a nice view of London and they've kind of done a slight Americanized set design which i really like and um it's it's visually great you know there's some lovely close-ups and things and i yeah really making me go oh what did they use to do that you know well is that the f- yeah go on ace i'm sorry is that the thing with bono's daughter yeah yeah yes How i didn't she act? i yeah you know yeah. She's, she fits it but she's brilliant in it and i didn't even know awesome. it was her till after so i didn't even have to sort of you know think oh is she any good i just thought yeah it's good <laughs> good also actually speaking of um because it's you know obviously award season and i'm doing all those preview things there was a q a with one night in miami and the cinematographer got a mention in that because if you haven't seen it because it's obviously if you don't know actually it was a play and then they've made this film and because it's mostly set in a hotel room how to get those shots so it's a really oh, great. yeah it's a really yeah. that's another good one to sort of see how they did the setup but that's pretty much me because everything else i've watched apart from the investigation which i ditched last week um mm-hmm. i'm doing sort of you know retrospectively i'm watching like black mirror and you know parks and recreation so i'm not really watching anything particularly current apart from one division so yeah which for someone um, i've told you this i don't do marvel but i'm really enjoying one division Oh yeah, it's same. on our yeah. list. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really it's well done. List. Yeah, we're good. Leon, are you a Marvel fan? Do you do you get into that see comics turned into films thing? I don't, I'm afraid, and I've really tried because I've got like an adopted son who's now 17, so he's not as interested. But for all the years, he's been obsessed, and I've had to go to the cinema with him, and <laughs> it's like, oh Christ. So no, I, I haven't got into it. I'm afraid. Mm. Okay. Okay, it's a, it's definitely one that um, I wasn't a comic book fan as a kid, and so I've. It's weird where some of them I really like, like I like I Iron Man, the first Iron Man, I, I absolutely loved it. But then I've tried to watch the kind of new super modern ones that have been done in the last sort of five or ten years. Um, I don't know. I'm a bit like Leon. It somehow struggle to get into it but mm. one division feels like something that i need to try at the very least mm. yeah it's certainly got an interesting take and it's it, it's messing around with your perception of what the comics are and i think marvel are making some interesting 
changes in how they're presenting their their comic material. I think because there's a whole thing of them feeding in the possibly feeding in the X-Men world, which they had previously, mm. you know, licensed out and then brought yep. back into the fold. So now that those characters are slightly starting to turn up, which is a quite a fun thing seeing mm. them collide. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. No, I'm. I'm. I think that may well get started um, this weekend. Uh, so a couple of things for me from this week. Firstly, uh, I watched the Truman Show again. Mm. Did have we discussed the Truman Show in the last few weeks, or did I talk no. about it with somebody else? Somebody else. Okay. Um, do you? I presume the three of you have seen the Truman Show. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. For Any sure. fans? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So Pete I, Jim Perry. Yeah, I watched it because I was curious as to how close to the bone it would feel um, now. Mm. So I put it on. Wow. Wow. So I think firstly, the genius of that film can only fully be appreciated in this world that we live in right now. Because yeah. I think when it was made, it was so far ahead of its time that you, it could be uh, fantasy and entertainment um, without ever, without you ever really feeling like it's close to anything that you may know. Mm. But wow, when you watch it now, you're just like, yeah, this feels really close to the bone. It's really brilliantly, brilliantly written and brilliantly paced. And it's funny that it's, it, it felt like it was a family film at the time. My memory of it was of it being a family film and somehow like an uplifting film um maybe just because it's got jim carrey in it but wow it's really dark yeah I, yeah i didn't see it as from, a family film <laughs> from from the opening sequence in the mirror um and all of the it's wow sorry i'm just i'm just <laughs> randomly gushing about it now but I think that uh, I think that if you haven't seen it recently, you should definitely uh, you should definitely go and check it out. And then the other thing, or unless unless somebody wants to talk about Truman Show, no. Well, I think um, Andrew Nichol, the writer, is just I've always been a bit of a fan because he's he's done consistently done interesting science fiction scripts that are the kind of ten years ahead, twenty years ahead sort of thing. And um, you know, looking at concepts of like AI with um, uh, the one he did was it her? Or was, uh, there was a Good one that was kind of like a um, artificial um, female character that that the agent had kind of created, um, and uh, and Gattaca as well is another good script of his. Um, oh, right. yeah, okay, he's, he's yeah. Really, he does interesting science fiction films, and I, I, I like that. He's ended up directing a few of them more recently, but I think that the Truman Show with Peter Weir directing it as well is a really great combination. Mm. Mm. He did um, uh, he did Lord of War, didn't he? The um the Nicolas Cage film, which really isn't sci-fi, but he, uh, I think he wrote it and directed it. And I loved that film as well. Uh, I don't think I've seen his sci-fi stuff. What did you say he'd done? Gattaca, what else? Gattaca. Uh, let's see, the writer. Um, Is it her with the yeah, Oh yeah, um, Simone was the one I was thinking of, which was, um, uh, was which is like S1M0NE. Uh, and that's, um, that's where it's a kind of an artificial um, woman character as a, uh, as a as a personality that um is created and um so he's kind of got that weird thing where he mixes in this sort of science fiction i was another one which had just tim blake and amanda say oh. 
Negan's filmed. Um, oh, I'm going to have to jump in yeah. there. Justin Timberlake. I watched yes. his mm. film. Palmer. And? Yeah, it was good. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty sort of stereotypical. A guy comes out of prison. and But there's actually a big twist to it, which I'm not going to spoil. But, no. But yeah, it's, it's very good, actually. And I've got... We don't do much music on here, but I'm going to shout out Mogwai's new album. Oh. Released this week. As the love continues, very good. Right, excellent. Check that out. As oh well, yeah, then. can I can I add in a Django Django album? I'm really enjoying too. Definitely. Oh. Uh, just came out last week. It's um really nice and feels like a, a spring, summery kind of album that's um kind of much needed right now at the end of this yes. pandemic time. Oh, oh wow! Well, listen, I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely checking that out this afternoon. Yeah, me too. Here. Um, I want to talk very quickly about White Tiger, which I watched on Netflix. Debs, you recommended it, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, so I was quite... Firstly, I feel as though you conned me because <laughs> I thought that I was going to watch a really uplifting comedy. Um, and I, I even said to Claire that let's watch this film because we don't feel like watching anything too heavy and it'll be nice, like <laughs> just chilled Sunday night thing and we'll laugh a little bit and wow that really not what it was um but i i think it was i think it was really good it's uh so for those who haven't seen it without spoiling it i i would i would almost equate it to parasites in that it's a film about um uh, that crosses classes about the class divide um in in india and the caste system and it's just, I guess the thing is, the, the lead character in it, he, the, the performance is incredible. And it's so good that it, you just, it's his film and he, and he takes it from, from minute one to, to, to the very end of it. Um, and there are, I mean, if I was, was going to be hypercritical, there are things that maybe some of the other acting is a bit wooden. Uh, I think some of the writing might feel a bit cliched at time, but overall, it's uh, it's really great film. Like I, I'm, what I really like, and I'd be interested to know what the three of you think, uh, or if you even like those things. I really like films that speak to uh, the class divide in that way. I feel, I feel, I feel as though there's a there's a way to treat the class divide without making it feel like poverty porn. Um, and I think that it manages to do that really well. Debs? Yeah, I agree. And I know you'd said that Claire was kind of, you know, the, the scene of the father having his feet washed and things by the servant. And yeah. we were sort of saying it's really uncomfortable to watch things. But I think it's really important to tell people stories that people like, you know, those things do happen that is still happening and it might feel a bit weird that in 2021 that 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 happens anywhere but yeah i mean i find it i just love the film just everything about it i loved the the fact that they put an unknown it's his first film and um yeah it's brilliant dale have you seen it no i'm still on that one actually like some films i i kind of let go by and then kind of pick them back up a little bit later on um, right yeah perhaps when my expectations have changed which i find is quite useful sometimes um when films been announced and kind of promoted i quite mm. like to leave them alone and then kind of re reapproach them um <laughs> because like your idea of seeing it and thinking it was going to be a little lighter i um <laughs> i once booked out a cinema for pan's labyrinth with a bunch of friends because 
we were all <laughs> expecting it to be this great fantasy um, creature thing, and and it was like uh, like we went in there expecting a bit of a party, and then all came out like oh oh my god. <laughs> so it was a not not the the, the most fun evening, and oh. in fact afterwards everyone just kind of shuffled off into their own and went went, went home. <laughs> so yeah, I think sometimes oh. it's nice to um, watch a film a few weeks later or a couple months later. Even yeah. I, I tend to do that with Cohen movies for some reason. I, I tend to not watch them when they come out in their mm. own time. Mm. And I'm, we've really enjoy them a bit more because of that. Yeah, mm. we've had this conversation on on previous podcasts that I'm I, I find it, I really struggle with hype, and I think we live in an mm. era where TV and film stuff every six months something is released which is the greatest in that particular genre, right? Um, and I really struggle with those shows or those films because i feel as though subconsciously the bar is raised so high that you're inevitably disappointed so i'm a little bit like you in that i have to leave shit alone for a year or two until everything has gone away and then i'll be like oh i'll, I'll pick that thing up now and try it um hmm. I, I feel as though i get a bit more out of stuff by See, he's still not watched it's a sin then <laughs> no i haven't i haven't but it's, it will get watched yeah. don't worry yeah it will yeah. It will it will definitely get watched. I had an interesting conversation with with a friend of mine about it this week, um, but that's probably for a different podcast because it will yeah. take us down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, don't want to go. I read, a, uh, <laughs> I read a very interesting review from the states because it's shown in uh, in the states on HBO Max, I think. Um, yeah, and and it was an interesting. It was really taught the tone tones and. I found that really interesting, having worked on a few Russell Davies productions myself. And actually, that's part of his style, is that he mixes mm. a bold, almost flippant, throwaway thing with something much, much heavier mm. and and smuggles in the heavy drama. And um, and it was interesting seeing that the Americans probably felt that that was a weird style, whereas in the UK, it's kind of you're a bit more used to it and, and maybe it's a bit more culturally um, relevant, um, oh, which I thought was kind of fascinating of how different yeah. writers you know tones can be received differently in different places definitely definitely um dale can we talk about you now <laughs> sure if you want oh, if you must yeah. we, we must i mean you know we've done we've done 30 we've done 30 minutes of of indulging ourselves and now let's get to the headline um no actually what i want to do is before we talk about cinematography uh, i want to know a little bit about you your background where you're from how you got into like your kind of journey into film and television. Where did it, how did it come about? Where did it begin? Yeah. I was always interested in movies. In, in fact, as a kid, I probably went to the movies um, quite early on and I was allowed to by my parents, you know, just to go into the into town and to the cinema with some friends or even by myself from quite a young age. In fact, I remember being led into um, with some friends for the movie Poltergeist when we were probably eight or nine and I think didn't have been led in there <laughs> and uh, we're completely terrified and then I had nightmares for months but it was great and I loved it and and it's you know always stuck with me um, but so there was a period I as a child I probably went to a movie every single weekend and so it was, it was always a great love of mine and, um, and we instantly ended up owning uh, my family ran a video store when I was a teenager as well. So I ended up working in a video store right through my teens, probably from 12 to 15 and watching, you know, 
three or four movies a day sometimes when I was in there. Um, and it was quite a boutique sort of place with quite a nice um, range of a little more art house films. Um, um, it was very, very curated as a style. It wasn't like a video easy or one of these big blockbusters and things which hadn't really arrived at that time. So uh, I got to see lots of really good films, you know, not just the kind of whatever was big at that time. Um, and so I grew up with movies uh, and television as part of my kind of thing, really. I probably got sat in front of the TV to be looked after at an early age, so that might be the, <laughs> might be the result, uh, is that I've ended up in the TV mm-hmm. film industry. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm from New Zealand and um, up in Auckland and moved over to the UK in 2007, here ever since, and uh, really enjoying it and, and continuing to work in film and TV. Mm. What was your kind of, did you, was your aim to be a cinematographer? Or in fact, you know what, actually, let's, let's start with this. Directors get all the headlines. And the first time that I went onto a set, um, I was told, go and stand behind the cinematographer because that's where the magic happens. Um, and I did, and I felt like, oh, wow. So the director gets all the headlines, but the cinematographer is feels <laughs> like the visual genius. So what's the difference between a director and a cinematographer for those who maybe don't know the distinction? Well, I think there's there's two things there. The first is that when you go and stand on a film set, it does look like the, the DOP, the cinematographer, doing or executing the visuals of the show and lighting and operating the camera maybe and, and kind of telling people what to do. And in that mm. sort of situation, the director is often hanging back because they've given the information already. They've got a shot list or they've got a plan. They've had lots and lots of prep and they're, they're more just talking to the actors about things. So you probably don't actually, even in that specific situation, you probably don't see the director's work, but it's often already happened. Mm. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, yeah, my, my role is to work hand-in-hand hand with the director. Uh, I work for them and kind of next to them at the same time um, to kind of execute their vision kind of alongside, hopefully, adding my vision to it um, for how we deal with, how we feel the script um, should be produced. And, um, and then I, under instruction from the director and with my own ideas too, hopefully, um, I kind of instruct the camera departments and lighting departments to then uh, generate the shots, you know, uh, control, the, control and design the lighting, um, control and design the camera movement. And, uh, and a lot of that comes down to like the choice of cameras and, you know, working with the team on set as well. Um, so it's, it's a really involved job, but it, um, it definitely works with the director and for the director. Um, my role is not to kind of like be on set and kind of um, push my idea ahead of that director's idea. Mine is to um, add my ideas to their ideas and kind of help them realise what they see because some directors um, are really visually strong and they know exactly what they want, but some people aren't. And so then my role changes and I'm there to help them get their ideas out of their head and onto the screen. What do you prefer? Do you prefer to work with directors who have got a very clear visual idea of what they want to do or do you prefer to be given some freedom within the project yeah it's a, it's a real spectrum between directors like the ones that are very interested about what they're after and what they see and they they might have even drawn it or storyboarded a very specific shot and then other directors are 
you know, might just be completely interested in the script and the performances and, and not at all interested in the visuals. And so um, there's a real spectrum where I kind of have to just change my role to fit one or the other or one, one version of the, or the other. Um, I, I do prefer when I have more of a say in the visuals. I think maybe that's just my, my ego. I like to like get my ideas across. But um, uh, I, I kind of learn how to work with either as much as possible. But I, you know, I do have a preference, which is it's nice to be able to add input to it and, uh, and there is this that I, I've had a director who said he said look you know how to shoot this you just shoot it and I'll deal with the other bit and and it's actually quite quite uh, freeing you know it does allow you to uh, if anything it actually makes you do a better job because you kind of go oh um, if I'm allowed to do what I want to do then I better do a good job because I'll only have myself to blame if I don't you know so I that can mm. be quite quite a nice thing quite a positive um, thing what's the um What's the biggest project you've worked on? Um, in terms, the biggest I've worked on ever was probably the first Narnia movie because it was just giant and you know like a four hundred okay. million dollar sort of film, and and then you're just a cog in the machine, um, which is a really interesting thing to experience actually, and and realize I don't actually like that that much. I much prefer smaller productions where you're where, where more people on the crew are actually part of making that project good, um, rather than mm. just being a cog in a, in a giant machine that's rolling along. Um, spitting out um, money as it goes, and um, but um, yeah, a ten star which is I the shot money better for you. Oh well, um, on the bigger ones, not really. Yeah, sort of like... the role is sort of the role. Um, okay. Yeah, you, the, the money is actually you know reasonably good, kind of all around compared to most people. I would say when you're when you are working, not that you're getting paid when you're not working, mm-hmm. um, but it actually is. It's really regional. Like uh, the money thing actually goes up where you shoot, not so much mm. what you shoot. Um, so if you're working in the oh, States wow. or in Canada, for example, because they have unions and have set uh, levels of pay, you immediately get a certain rate that you wouldn't get over here uh, in the UK, mm. um, which is always a bit interesting. And I think it should be more comparable around the world. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a, a bigger discussion <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> How do you get work? Do you have an agent? Yes, I do have an agent. I actually have a couple of agents. So after shooting uh, Tin Star in Canada in 20, oh, 18 or 16? Oh gosh, 16? 18? <laughs> 16. And um, I actually was then approached by an American agent to be signed up um, because it had some good press in, in Hollywood. And they, they thought, okay, there's someone I can kind of shop around to get some work. Um, and I've had um, various agents in the UK since I moved over from New Zealand. Um, as the relationships have kind of grown or, or, or withered away, and you know, we've switched to a different relationship, um, and um, it's it's very important to have an agent in my role. Um, producers don't really like you kind of cold calling them, even though most of the jobs I do are with people I already know now, having been yeah. in the industry a while. Mm. But you really need an agent to take those projects, find out what projects are around, and make those initial calls. And and there's there's sort of a standard method that that, that people get jobs, and so it is. A structure with an agent and if you don't have one it's actually quite tricky because it you know people are kind of like well who are you you know to call up and kind of ask for a, ask for a gig or something like that and you just and you might not know until quite late that a job actually exists whereas an agent might get the script very early on and so they can start approaching those that company about it before they've even maybe thought about hiring a cinematographer um, and in new zealand we didn't have agents agents at all so it was just yourself um calling people up and just based on the work you've already done. Leon? Hey, Sam. 
<laughs> You're still with me. <laughs> I am, yeah. I want to ask you about your experience um, on 100 Streets. What I want to ask you really is how you came to choose who your cinematographer was, what, that, what the process was in deciding who your cinematographer was. Yeah, we, um, we had a line producer, I think, who worked with mm -hmm. a chap called Philip Blauback, and we'd looked at the films he'd done. I think he did Disappearance of Alice Creed with Gemma Arterton, and we interviewed him. We interviewed about six or seven different DOPs, but Philip was sort of very no-nonsense and German, and very sort of, I don't know to say the cliche efficient and great at penalties, but he was... <laughs> He was just a cool guy, and, and although he was pretty straight, I remember him running down the embankment to get a shot, and the first AD was going mental. Going, no, Philip, <laughs> <laughs> shut up, I'm getting the shot. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I loved him, and actually we do play golf a little bit. And yeah, so I think because we had a really tough shoot, we had a crew of between 60 and 100, and we had a, an intensive three moves sometimes in a day. It had to be someone who was unflappable and, and Philip was the man. So it was as much about the personality as about the... And obviously the budget level. You know, there is a budget level. Mm. He'd done decent independent films. So they're probably the two main things. And obviously we, our director ended up being a gun for hire. But he had to sort of share the vision of myself as the writing producer. And more importantly share the director's vision and they got on really well but that's how we mm. chose it it's such a cliche that the um cinematographer needs to be a swan you know that they're all gliding across the surface but kicking like mad underneath and, <laughs> yeah. um, and and that's really true that one of the best things you can do as a as a cinematographer is just be calm mm. and and allow the chaos to happen around you and not be flapped by it because uh, it's, it's a really high pressure situation on a film set and there's always time pressure there's ex expectations that you're trying to achieve something and you know there are, there are people even on the set who are trying to push you along to get things done um, possibly at the expense of it being good uh, and you kind of have to be able to gently push back to still try and achieve something good within the time you've got and you know there can be a lot of panic and uh, raised voices at times and um yeah, one of the best things you can do is just just do, keep doing your thing, you know, and not not freak out. And and I find directors really respond to that too because they're looking for someone to like just be solid, you know, and just give them a break from the kind of the chaos of the situation. <laughs> because the DOP's there for every single shot, which pretty much another director's there, but not many people are there for every single thing. And, and yeah. it has to be that calm influence because sets can be mad pretty much all the time and he has to be calm or he or she has to be calm yeah and I think it's also one of the few roles um I started in soap operas and one of the first you know as a, as a camera operator and a camera assistant and one of the first things I kind of realized when I was a junior uh, on set was when someone says action there are only a few people who are actually doing something other than the actors and I kind of wanted to be one of those people. I didn't want to be the person that stopped doing things when they said action. Mm -hmm. And so uh, yeah. the cinematographer is always busy. You know, it's a great role because there's never a dull moment <laughs> on set, um, for better or worse. And, um, yeah, when you're, when you're actually, when they say action, you're also doing something and you're helping that performance get captured. And um, sometimes I like to think it's the, 
you've got you're basically the audience but the very first audience that gets to watch the show so you're oh. sitting in the best seat of the house all the time you know and really connecting with that performance and that can be a really powerful thing mm. i love how that. early sorry sorry i was just gonna just say like... Go on. Go on. <laughs> well, you going to say, how early would you get on board? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, like, I'm well, interested. There you go. This links to my, my next comment. Because we, we you, are, on. you go first. We've already chosen a, a, uh, an unflappable DOP for my next film, which is getting close. We've got the leads. Woo. It's getting closer. But he's a Kiwi, and it's Jerry Fassbender. Fassbender. Oh, he's great. Yeah, good yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah, so I just lovely guy. That, a fellow Kiwi. Yeah, I definitely know Speaks him well. Speaks highly of yeah. you, by the way. I oh, thank you. That's nice. You're on the pod, and he said, uh, you're amazing. Um, I said, well, actually, I'm going to have a chat rather than, Jerry, you've lost the job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so in preempting your question, Asan, then, yeah, we're, we're probably rather two months or five months away, depending on what we decide later. So, okay. yeah. The yeah, on board. it can be quite early. Um, you know, you might you might get a call about the job and interview for the job, you know, quite a few months out, you know, four or five months out even, mm. um, depending on how busy it is mm. in the in the general scene and the environment as well. You know, because people, if it's really busy, then people are trying to pin their crew down as early as possible. Um, when I actually would start on a job, is is a lot more variable, um, but usually much closer to the shoot date, depending on the budget. You know, a, a low budget show might only get you on a few weeks before you start filming and you just have to cram in all of the prep with the director then and scouting locations. Um, I tend to do a lot of new higher end television these days, um, like new TV shows, and I, I try to concentrate on um, starting new shows and which d- does mean you do you get given a lot more prep. Um, mm. And, you know, for example, this, the job I'm just starting now is is two plus months of prep before the filming starts and so the shoot is actually wow. only five five or six weeks long with you know eight to ten weeks prep and that's uh indicative of the fact that it is a new piece of material and there's a lot more conceptual meetings and discussions to be had and choosing locations as, as, a, as a more deliberate time-consuming process mm. as it's all fresh um, whereas if you're going in on a later couple of episodes the locations have all been pre-decided to a large extent and so you can prep it much faster can um, I can I ask yeah. about that? So you're you're on yeah. board for the whole show for this one, aren't you? But it's not unusual for you to just kind of be, you know, to, to have that role shared through a series, or you know, that's kind yeah. Of... Sure, it's interesting. It's often been a case that you would just do an episode and you'd kind of then move on, and someone else would do the next one. Um, partly in terms that they get a chance to prep with that, the next director. Um, more recently, shows have been getting um, cinematographers to shoot a larger number of apps or, or all the apps mm. with the same mm. director as well. So you're kind of more treating the story as if it was like a really long movie, mm. um, which I really like, actually, because I think that it, you do feel like it's a long movie and the whole crew starts to gel more because you haven't got the turnover of personnel as so much, um, you know, different people getting used to each other constantly um, when a new crew comes in mm. or a new team of director DOP come in. Um this, uh, the next job, actually, I'm just starting it, though, so I'm only doing the first two episodes, and then it'll carry on with another cinematographer and director um, from there. I might carry on, go, you know, and then do the next set of episodes, potentially, um, yeah. depending on how the situation goes on that show but um, and what else is out there. Mm. Um, the Tin Star is a good example. That was a show that I started, but uh, the other cinematographer, Paul Sorosi, and I 
alternated um, constantly throughout the, the three seasons of the show. So we ended up sharing the duties on it, really. Is there a difference between how you approach uh, your job on a, f- on a film as opposed to a TV series? Uh, no, and I, 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 there, is a, there is no difference for me, um, partly because I always try and approach a TV show as if it was a movie. And I think yeah. that's part of the trick of it is, you know, when you when you go in thinking I'm just making a TV show, then potentially you're you're setting yourself up to fail <laughs> straight away. Um, whereas I always think that the best television takes the best of movies and does what it can to kind of meet that level, um, mm. you know, with the, in terms of how quickly it can shoot and how much money it has to to play with things. But um, I really like the approach of always considering it as if I was watching a movie. Um, in my head when I'm reading the script and never playing down my expectations of what that script could be. And and I think that's always the, the fight in some ways as a cinematographer is to always reach for a high bar that you maybe don't always meet, but try. Mm. Yeah. Hey, I got a question that is not on any agenda or any notes <laughs> anywhere, but my gosh, I've got to ask you. So obviously you, you will read a lot of scripts, yeah? As a cinematographer... What are you looking for from a scriptwriter? It's mm, a good question, actually. Um, you know, I, I read a script in kind of two minds when I'm reading them. I, I read them both in terms of will I, can I find something in this visually that I can add to it, or does it evoke imagery in my head when I read it? That's probably number one. Like, can I start? Do, if I just start picturing this film as I'm as I'm reading it along, um, that's that's a really good sign for me because I'm like, okay, I'm engaged in this. Um, and then simply, is, is it a story I enjoy? You know, is it a, is it a, are there characters that I want to know more about? Is there a story I want to follow? Um, often with television scripts, it's if I get to the end of the first script and I really want to read the next one, that's a, you know, it's a good sign <laughs> that, um, that it was just a great story that I really want to learn more about. And that's, you know, I have to have that personal engagement in anything I do. Otherwise, I think it would be, it's too difficult a job to, to make someone not so I'm quite picky about. I really want to like that script when I read it, and 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 then that then that informs you from then on. It kind of it gives you motivation to go through so much more work um, because that good script is behind it all. Um, but it also needs to allow you room to interpret it, which I think is a is a trickier thing. And um, you know, if you can see possibilities that are maybe not on the page, but um, implied or inferred, <laughs> I can never remember which one's which, um, on the page, you know, that um, evoke emotions that you think, oh, there's something I can add to that emotion with some shots here. Um, yeah, mm. it's a, yeah, it's, I mean, it all ha- it all comes from the script, um, to be honest with you, and, and I'm sure that's a, a, a super obvious cliche, but, you know, it's very difficult to make um, a good TV with, uh, with a limited script or no script or an unfinished script, which mm. is happens actually quite often um, yeah. yeah yeah scripts are often being written while we're filming and sometimes i've definitely i've definitely started filming a show before we had one of the scripts um and you just kind of well we know the scene is going to be about that and we can know it's going to be there so let's go there and we'll be ready to shoot and hopefully we'll have the script when we turn up oh god and uh and and sometimes it's written while we're standing there so <laughs> but i wouldn't necessarily recommend that it needs mm. to be the right people to do that mm. <laughs> Yeah, they can work too. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Is there a way that I could... So what I'm interested in is when... 
Like, is there a way that I could box you in? What don't you like as a cinematographer? For, I, I'm a scriptwriter. I'm writing a pilot for a TV series. What shouldn't I do? What, what could I do that would piss you <laughs> off? That would make you go, yeah, um, you know what? I, this guy is, is not right for me. Well, actually, the, the number one thing is not right to the budget that you're going to be able to get. Oh. But, uh, you know, like you'll read some of the best like low budget films, for example, are things like Cube, which is one set with different colors. You know, yeah. it's just like the whole thing is one set. And it, but it never felt like one set because it feels like a journey. They're moving through from room to room. And that is a brilliant example of writing for what you can achieve and being clever about it. Um, if you read a script that is terrific and full of great stuff, but you just know that you're not going to be able to pull it off, that's mm. really disheartening because you're, you know that it's going to be whittled away over time constantly. And um, so I think part of it is, yeah, writing to, writing to the brief of, of, of the ability for the, the production and the budget that it's able to command. Um, yeah, mm. it's really hard if you're on set and you're like, oh, it'd be, this was so good. Um, we, we'd never be able to make way. It's disappointing. Yeah, I know. I can totally see that. So look, has technology changed that? And, and what I mean by that is I'm interested oh, yes. in, obviously, like, we the, the use of drones has become much, much more prevalent. Um, I don't want you to talk just about drones, but just in general, mm. how has technology in the last 10 years made it easier or harder to make beautiful images on set? Um, it's, it's really, the last 10 years, in maybe even 20 years has been a massive change in the film industry from where we were in the 80s and 90s and um yeah it's entirely about technology um there's always been a kind of influx of technology in the film industry it's got quite a maker culture of people creating a rig um, steadicam is a really good example of of someone who is an inventor just going i've got an idea i think i could make something kind of cool and we could see if it can be developed and then turning into a staple of the industry um, and something, a tool that's used consistently on every show, essentially, after that, after a while. And drones and gimbals and uh, the digital cameras, they're all new pieces of tech that we grab onto. Because we're always looking for some new way of filming something, too. And so, you know, you, when drones started and they started getting cheaper and smaller, it was like, oh, great. That's a, that's a way of us getting an aerial without a really expensive helicopter hire. And, um, you know, potentially it could be lower and faster and, you know, closer to the actors and things. And, and so drones have, have really advanced so fast in the last um, 10 years, specifically with consumer-based drones getting better and better and better quality as well as being easier and easier to fly. That, that suddenly just become another tool in the arsenal that you have, um, uh, you know, to, to, to throw at a script so that you can say, you know, you, you might read a script and say, oh, this feels like a Steadicam shot here, or this would be nice to pop out to an aerial shot here, and now we can choose to put a drone there. Even if it's just a high wide, mm. you know, you might just be able to get that far easier with a drone than anything else. Um, you know, so you're always looking for new tools to kind of add in, and and it's really interesting how quickly they become the norm as well. You know, it's, it was a very short time we went ago that we weren't using drones, and now they're very, very normal in most shows, and, you know, there's a an interesting change between the conversation of oh could we use something like that here or is that even allowed and to it becoming the production manager just saying 
where's the drone shots? How many days are we hiring it for? You know, like <laughs> like <laughs> expecting it to happen and then saying you can you can only have five. You know, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, it's really changed the industry, and I think that the great thing is the technology is making better quality images um, in particular too, because the cameras are smaller, they're higher resolution, they're better dynamic range. You know, we're getting motion picture quality pictures on a very, very low budget. And that's so helpful for so many productions now to make better looking shows. And even if you've got no money, you can go out with a really good stills camera and that, you know, maybe a grand or two grand and, and still get really good pictures that are equivalent to an older 35 mil film camera. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's yeah. a huge a huge change. Sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> is there a downside to technology? Uh, the biggest downside to technology is keeping up with it, I think. Uh, I think it's very... There's always been change in the film industry and there's always been a need to uh, embrace new technology. And I think the moment you stop embracing it and willing, being willing to learn new tools and change with it, um, mm. you become quite redundant, you know, quite quite fast as well. Um, so I think that it can be really difficult for um, so people who have been in their career for a while and maybe known that become real, real masters at their tools to then not be able to respond when a new tool turns up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that technology can be quite tricky like that because there is always that feeling like, oh, there's some, some young guy with a stills camera is out there now calling themselves a cinematographer and shooting a music video. And it's like, yeah, they are. And maybe they're doing a really good job at it. <laughs> you know, maybe you need to watch that and go, oh, this is something I could take from that and add into my work. Um, it's very easy to kind of um, put up defenses to new things, after, especially if you've got a long enough career and you feel like you've you've earned your experience. Um, but I personally love the technology coming along, and I think it keeps enriching and changing things. And it always just keeps the, the it always keeps you learning. And I think that's the best thing about mm. being a cinematographer. It's a long career that never, never gets old. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, there's always something new to figure I'll out. Ask a question, I, please. I, I, go on, Liam. Last question. No, don't, don't say it like that. that. <laughs> Why do you say it like that? I'm, it's like oh, I'm Liam. a kid in the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> go on then, if you have to. <laughs> Honestly, what's the dynamics on this podcast? I've turned into Carl Pilkington again. But I'm not as funny. Oh, you are. Oh, mate. I I think you are. I think you are just as funny. I'm really sorry if that sounded off. Genuinely, mate. Go on, Yeah, go on, If you have to. Um, No, I was just going to ask, and it's sort of... And it's this whole kind of issue that people in the higher levels of the industry, such as yourself, unlike me down in the lower, in, in the trenches, <laughs> would you take a project based upon really decent money and to even take your career further if you didn't agree or necessarily like the material? Which goes back to our mm. Marvel sort of... Yeah, that's a really, really good question, actually. I, I mean, I... There's kind of two sides to that for me. One of them is a technical one. Is and using a Marvel as a really good example. Um, I, I happen to really like genre kind of comic book stuff and superhero things, so that's fine. And sci- science fiction, you know, if I could shoot a really good, well-written science fiction movie, I'd be very, very happy. But, but at the same time, if I wasn't into doing that material, there is a there's a lot of interest as a cinematographer in the actual technique as well. So, I would have to really think about it. And like, if I was given the resources and the time and the money to make something really cool technically visually 
even if it was serving a story that was entirely commercial that maybe I didn't really, you know, love my, personally, I, I, it, it'd be a difficult consideration because there, there is a side of the of being a cinematographer that's not just about the story, it is about the technicalities as well. And sometimes it's fantastic to be able to stretch that side of you and learn and try things with, if, with the, you know, especially with the resources and time to do something really uh, extravagant, um, even if it was... Um, kind of vapid <laughs> but um you know at the same time the opposite is i would also then go the other way sometimes i would i would be happy to work with just myself and a camera on my shoulder if the story was really good and there was no money you know that's equally satisfying in a different way so so, so it kind of depends ways, on where you are in your career too like you you do want to engage in the story so you know football hooligan films for mm. example still do good business uh in this country you know not football hit hooligans per se but that kind of genre of film uh if that yeah. wasn't your thing would you and, and it was decent money and a good gig in spain for two months or wherever would you be like nah that's not for me yeah i probably i probably wouldn't actually to be honest with you i, I yeah i kind of if, if i've just done a big job then i'm usually more willing to take a smaller one you know just simply because yeah. financially i maybe have a bit more freedom to um you know, if someone if someone was throwing money at you to just help them get something made, and you like the person who's involved, not necessarily the show. Like, so maybe the producer is a producer and and have worked with and enjoyed working with, or a director, mm. and they say, "Hey, look, come and make this thing with me." It's, you know, it's not really our cup of tea, but it's a gig. You know, um, that, it'd be a consideration, but it would it would be based on that person as well. You know, so mm. having a relationship. It's so hard, isn't relationship. it? It's such a hard yeah, experience yeah. that you want it to be with someone you enjoy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, and I really feel like I, you know, when I am considering a show to work on, I really am an hour over them, you know, because the moment I commit to a show, I'm really committing my life to it for a certain number of months, and the, and that's to the exclusion of nearly everything else in my life, um, and that's just the necessity of the job because of the hours and the usually you're away, traveling away or things like that, so you have to kind of want to do it, you know, for, for one reason or another, <laughs> whether that be financially or whether it be because it's telling the story that you want to tell or giving you the opportunity to flex a creative muscle that you really want to flex. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult job. Like I, I really enjoy it, but at times I'm kind of feel like I'm, I, I really am an R and I really kind of very hesitant to accept a role, a job until I, until I do. But once I do, that's it, I'm in there, you know, and that's all I'm doing now. Um, and we always talk about on, the, on another podcast I used to do was about corporate gigs for comedians, how they kind of do them because you can't really say no, but obviously a lot of DOPs get involved in a lot of commercials when in downtime. Hmm. Is that something now? Yeah. You're, what's your attitude towards, you know, they're not really a quiet comparison to a, an amazing commercial to a corporate gig for a comedian, but... What's your sort of attitude to commercials? Yeah, interestingly, I, I used to shoot a lot of kind of uh, larger commercials when I was living in New Zealand and actually haven't broken into that market in the UK, even though I at times would, would like to. Um, it's quite a good lifestyle um, working on commercials because they tend to be quite well paid. Uh, they're quite short, so you're not taken away 
out of your normal life for very long. You know, you get only a few days working on a commercial and then it's finished and you get to then show it off to people quite quickly. Whereas I might shoot something in January and maybe not show, be able to show anyone until the following January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, so there's, there's a different, and sometimes it's f- four to six months working on a show for me or three to eight months, you know. So that's a big chunk of your life as well. So commercials are quite appealing in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, interestingly, I also used to direct and shoot corporate videos. And um, funnily enough, I actually really enjoyed them because they, the clients were really, um, they loved what you gave them. You know, they were, they were quite willing to give you a lot more freedom to make what they wanted to make. And because they weren't industry people, film industry people, they were often really chuffed with what you turned up with. And um, so they can be quite fun, actually. I'm not that, not too big a snob about that. Um, um, but yeah, it's a, at the end of the day, I, I really like longer stories and I like particularly working with actors so one thing that commercials is that you tend to work with the models a lot more and um, nothing against models um, looking great but they're often not very good actors and mm. um, and they're and often you're trying to make them act and then <laughs> and then there's a bit of a collision of expectation there as well you know um, and so I, I much prefer being on set when I when a good actor is in front of you doing a good performance and um, that's kind of my happy place um so that i've definitely been drawn to drama in that respect well do you know what i could sit here all day and <laughs> talk about this i've got so many questions that we obviously can't get around to but we've come to time already can you believe it but thank you dale so much i'm sure everyone agrees that that was just fascinating just amazing and yeah sorry we couldn't sit here and talk for another hour to be honest but anyway um that was episode 14, not the unlucky 13. We, not 13. Uh, we managed to get through, I think. <laughs> I mean, what do you think, Asan? Was it okay? <laughs> I love that. I really I love that. And I know, okay, I know we're keeping it a secret, but fair play to Dale for coming again. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're going to have... It's Take all coming out. Again. It's all Leon, out. Leon's just, Leon's, just, Leon's just let the cat out of the bag. It's true that we actually did, a, did this podcast last week. And then technology at our homework. So yeah, we it did. I think he just wanted I us have... to say happy birthday again. That's what it was. <laughs> I have the strangest deja vu right now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, um, it, I feel like putting my hand up and saying it's sort of human error versus uh, a technical glitch. But anyway, thank you so much, Dale, for, yes, coming back and doing it all again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> for part three yes (laughs) thank you everyone uh, who listens to our podcast and if you like us give us a follow tell your friends leave comments uh, get involved and as Asan would normally say we think this might have been okay